Indeed, we are starting our series on race and racism and the reconciliation of Christ today. I just wanted to start out real quick with a summary of the goals that we have for the series. First of all, and this is one that we'll accomplish mostly this morning, we want to provide a biblical view of race and God's purposes for races, for nations, for ethnicities. Second, we want to provide a historical perspective on racism and its effects and the effects that we still continue to experience as people, as nations, as ethnicities and races, as cities. Third, we want to examine the world's theories of justice or how to resolve some of these problems uh, and also provide a, a biblical vision of justice. The gospel and the word of God is not silent on how we are to address the challenges that we face uh, in our culture and society. And number four, we're going to uh, have leaders, um, some from here in the Twin Cities, some from outside. Uh, we've got a, uh, uh, a pastor from Detroit who will be coming. He's, uh, if you know the story of Detroit, we're going to spend a little time on Detroit and some of these other northern cities. Uh, his name is Tyler St. Clair. He's a pastor in Detroit, and he'll be coming to speak on how he's doing gospel ministry in a place that has been significantly affected by racism over the last oh, many years, uh, decades. Um, we've got uh, Justin Terrell from the He's the executive director of the Minnesota Justice Research Center, which is uh, striving to reform the criminal justice system. Um, we've got uh, George Clance, excuse me, George Yancey. He is an author. He wrote a book called uh, Beyond Racial Gridlock, and he'll be coming in August. And we have Corey and Mariah Dean from the Man Up Club, founders of the Man Up Club, who are going to talk about uh, what they're doing in the Twin Cities to uh, work against the effects of racism. So we're going to have some leaders here that are working against racism and its effects in our society, and we're going to learn from them, and we're going to see how we can participate with them um, and come alongside of them and just learn from them to see how we can grow in our efforts to um, counter the effects of these injustices as well. So really the ultimate purpose we have for the series is to provide clarity and direction on how to think and act in a way that's worthy of the gospel, in a way that's worthy of the gospel in our world that not only suffers from the sins of racism and discrimination and greed, but of division and conflict in general. So that's what we want to do. That's what we need. That's what we want to do. That's what we need to do. And as Lawrence said this morning, um, you know, we're going to need grace and patience along the way. These are challenging topic, topics. These are challenging subjects. Uh, as, as the Apostle Paul himself said, um, we see dimly, we know partially. And if the Apostle Paul says that after seeing Jesus and being taken into the heavens, uh, certainly we must all be in a place of humility and learning about these things because none of us know everything, and we're going to engage these conversations and subjects in an honest way recognizing, too, that we've all got some things to learn. So we're looking forward to the conversation that we have as a church uh, inside of our own families and house churches, but also with others on the outside that aren't a part of our, of our community. And so I felt like what we needed to do here at the beginning was do a big-picture overview on what the Bible says about, about race, 
We had somebody send us a, a question, send me a question a couple weeks ago. Where did races come from? How, how did this emerge? And so um, before we do that, I just, what do we mean by the term race? Because there's a lot of discussion and conversation and debate about exactly what, the, what, a, what race means. I'm going to use the term that Thomas Sowell uses. So if you're not familiar with Thomas Sowell, he is a, a very renowned uh, black scholar. He's in his... He's been retired for a number of years, but I think he's written 10 books in retirement. Um, he says the term race is used in his books, and I want to use them the same way here. The term race will be used here in the broad social sense in which it is applied in everyday life to designate ethnic groups of various sorts. We're not going to get into detailed scientific analysis and all these conversations about about what race should be or that there's no such thing as races. We, we use this term uh, as a culture. He said if we, if we go past this idea of race, uh, we're really not going to be using it in a way that makes sense to anybody in the general public. And so really, the broad social sense in which, is, in which it is applied in everyday life to designate ethnic groups of various sorts. And so what I want to do is, is start with Genesis, and we're going to end in Revelation, um, and look at the unfolding plot of race in the Bible. And so we're going to start with Genesis 11, 1 through 9. So the passages are all here, and we're going to read through them. And, I, and it's, it's more text than usual, and we didn't have a reader, because I want to unfold this together uh, as a church, because I think it's important for all of us to see the text itself and how it unfolds in the words that it uses. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the text, and I'm just going to make a few comments as we go, and you'll see the argument unfold. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another in their one language and same words, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So God had told humanity when he created them to multiply and to fill the earth. And there was the increase in violence, and then you have the flood in chapter 6, and it goes really up through, up through chapter 9, and there's some stuff about the genealogies and generations. And then here you come to Genesis chapter 11, the people from Noah and his three sons, 
and they come together in a common language with the common words. And they are one people. And literally, the word there that they use is that they are one ethnic people. They are one race. There is ethnic solidarity in that group of people. Well, God disperses them because their ambition, their ambition is to make a name for itself. They want to reach the heavens. Essentially, they want to be the God of their own lives. They do not want to follow the command that God had given them for humanity to cover the face of the earth. They wanted to stay in one place to make a name for themselves, to glorify themselves, to be great for themselves, and they wanted to do it. And it's important here to see that this is the central human tendency to make a name for ourselves, to set ourselves apart from God and his purposes for humanity and for us, and to say, you know what, we want to be masters of our own lives. And so this is the origin of what we call the races, ethnic groups. The Bible will use the term nations. When we think of nations, we think of state boundaries, political boundaries. When the Bible uses the term nations, it means ethnic groups, peoples of a common language. All right, so it's a little bit different. So that's why I'm going to use this term ethnicities today or peoples of language or the term races instead of the term nations because, it, because of the different way that we think about them. And so then we get to Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Now you have Genesis 10, 25 there. I'm not going to read it, but prior to chapter 11, in one of the great lists of genealogies that you see that structures Genesis, they named one of their sons... Peleg, because it means divided. They actually named one of their children who was born at that time to remember this moment when God dispersed the nations by creating different languages. So this is a nodal event in the family tree of humanity. Immediately after this dispersing of the peoples, no longer having one race, no longer having one ethnic group, but multiple races, multiple ethnic groups, multiple languages. This is when God now reveals himself to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you have all these dispersed nations, dispersed families, dispersed ethnic groups, and God goes to the man Abram and says, I am going to bless your ethnic group. I'm going to bless your race, and through blessing your race, I will bless the other races of the earth. And he, he, in contrast to the Babylonians, where they said, we will make ourselves great, we will make a name for ourselves, God says, 
Abram, I am going, I am going to make your name great. I am going to make your nation great. So you have these, you have these two contrasting nations, really. There are the nations of the world that are going to strive to make their own names great. And you have the nation of God whom God will make great. All ethnicities are going to prosper through Abram because God is going to bless that nation. And it's going to be a nation of nations. It's going to be a family of families. It's going to be a race of races. Whereas the dispersed peoples of the world are going to be divided because of their languages, God is going to make a nation that is united because of his work to make them great. And so it's going to take the great work of God to unite the nations of the earth. And they're going to have a different agenda than making their own selves great. They're going to be in the service of of the Lord. And so Israel... The man Abram and his family of 70 become hundreds of thousands in the nation of Egypt as they are enslaved there. God saves them from Egypt, gives them the law, and I want to read a few portions of the law here. Exodus 12, 48 through 49, 22, 21, and 23, 9. So this is the formation of the new nation of Israel. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, a non-Israelite, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, a citizen, we would say. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Then later, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. One chapter later, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. We would use the term immigrant. We would use the term immigrant. And so what you see here is God's policy on immigration. Leon Cass in his book on Exodus says, what is striking is how, is how open to accepting strangers the children of Israel are encouraged to be and how generous are the criteria for allowing outsiders to join their ranks. The critical requirement for membership is not the blood tie of birth or ethnicity or the ability to contribute to the gross national product but commitment to the covenantal purposes to which the community is dedicated, which he had told Abram earlier, is to do justice and righteousness. Anybody could be a member of the nation of Israel if they simply engaged in the same covenantal promises that the people of Israel itself had to engage in. If you wanted to participate in the Passover celebration, you needed to be circumcised. That was the sign of being a member of the nation, which was a commitment to the covenant that God had made with his people. That was it. And it it wasn't anything different than the people themselves had to do. Anybody that wanted to be a part of the nation of God, regardless of what peoples they were from, regardless of their language, could be in the nation of God. 
And then much later in the prophets, Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 7, when in the whole list of prophets that God had sent to Israel and to Judah to bring them back to his covenant, one of the things, he lists several things in chapter 22 of Ezekiel, which we covered last fall. One of the things that they were being judged for, one of the things that God had used Assyria and Babylon to to capture and to take away and to exile uh, Israel and Judah was their treatment of sojourners, treatment of immigrants. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner or the immigrant suffers extortion. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. And so we know the story. People that do not have a social network people that do not have the financial resources, people that have come in, left their homes, left their families, left their works, they are in a place of being vulnerable. And what we typically do, humanity, to make our, to make our names great is we use others to build ourselves up. And that's what humanity typically does with the immigrant, with anybody that is vulnerable. They take advantage of their situation. And so, as we all know, uh, Israel and Judah were taken captive, wiped out, Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed, the city destroyed. They're taken into captivity. And Jesus, Jesus comes to Israel while they are captive. And Jesus performs his, his, his ministry on earth within primarily the nation of Israel, with the specific purpose of showing that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He's the descendant of Abraham, the man that God said he would bless. And through him would bless the rest of the nation. So that's Jesus Christ. And his ministry to Israel was for them to see that he was the Messiah, that he was this promised child, he was the promised king, the promised prophet. He is the one that would bring fulfillment to these promises that God gave to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so here in John chapter 12, he has performed... Now, the book of, the book of John is organized according to various signs, Specifically, seven. Seven signs that each, in a special way, showed Israel that he was the, the promised son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one. And so he had just raised, in chapter 11 of the book of John, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead, which was his, his greatest sign that he performed. And we get to chapter 12. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, so this is the time of the Passover in Jerusalem, those among who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Outsiders coming to Jerusalem to worship. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so, 
there's a, a, an important transition that happens here in chapter 12 from the standpoint of the unfolding of John's purposes. He's been ministering in Jerusalem and in, in Israel, and now the Greeks come. And that's when Jesus says, my time is up. So, the seed, so he talks about, you know, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it will not bear much fruit. And so Jesus now sees the, the, the nations have come. Now I can die. The nations have come. Now I can die. And then the rest of the book is how to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ this gospel that goes to the nations, and I didn't include it in here, but at the end of, at the end of Jesus's um, upper room discourse where he's talking to the disciples about what it means to follow him and abide in him, he prays a prayer. And the gist of the prayer is that we would be one, his people. And from a biblical standpoint, what he has to be referring to is the nations, the ethnic groups, the races, the very entities that have proven throughout millennia of human history just can't seem to get along. And, and Jesus knew that that would be the tendency for the people of God as well, because you saw it in, in, in Israel. They were oppressing the immigrants and the strangers and the sojourners for the purpose of making their own names great. This is perhaps one of the greatest challenges that we have, and you see it popping up throughout the stories in the book of Acts, through the letters. There's always this conflict between races, and not just races, anywhere there's a difference. Anywhere there's a difference. We as human, well, I'm kind of getting to the end part of the sermon, so let me continue. <laughs> a couple more passages here. The end of the Gospel of Luke, recorded differently than John does, Jesus says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all ethnic groups. That's what the word nations there in the Greek means, all ethnic groups. It's the word ethnos, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. Genesis chapter 11. And 12. God is still in the work of making a great people with a great name. Not with the covenant of circumcision as with the nation of Israel, but with the person of Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham. Those very old promises that really began with the promise to man and woman in the garden when they disobeyed God, I am going to give you a child and he will bring life back to this planet. And an aspect of life back to this planet is going to be the unities, the unity of the nations. The unity of the nations. 
And I want to just briefly mention, mention Romans 15, verse 20. It's not in your list. But Paul says, I have fulfilled my obligation to this geographic area, basically to the Mediterranean. He's, he started maybe 10 or 12 churches in key cities, expecting that those 10 or 12 churches would spread into their surrounding areas, crossing political lines, ethnic lines, languages. Paul expected those churches would do that over the centuries, and they in fact did. He says, I am done in this area, just with 10 or 12 churches. I'm now going to Spain. He is on a mission to take the gospel to the nations. That is his agenda. He sees that his work is tied to this promise that God has made to make a great nation of the nations. That's what Paul was about, a great nation of the nations, a great family of all families. He wasn't going to just stick around in his spot. So we come to Revelation chapter, well, excuse me, Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. The God who made this is Paul preaching to the Athenians. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives all to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every ethnic group. From one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not very far from each one of us. Somehow, in God's sovereign ways, he has dispersed all peoples, all nations around the world in a place and at a time where they can find him if they are seeking him. That is what God is doing. And he made from one man, I, I haven't decided if it is if it is Adam or if it's Noah, since it's Noah out of chapter 6. But anyway, he made from one man every nation. Every ethnic group has the same source. Every ethnic group has the same source. We are all tied together somehow. We are not fundamentally different. We are all made in the image of God from one man. We are not different. Finally, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 26. This is the new city that has come down out of heaven. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and there's a city that has come down. It's a, it's in, in, in John's description in the book of Revelation, it's a city that is 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Essentially, if you just plopped a city down on half of the country, that would be the city of, of the United States from about Kansas to the East Coast and the full height. And I saw no temple in the city. It's a massive city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. By, the light, by its light, the light of the Lamb, will the nations, will the ethnos, will the ethnic groups walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, 
and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The nations. All of the ethnic groups, all of the races will ultimately be in this city. See, we're back at a city. Started a city in Babel, and this is God's long redemptive work. He will take, he will take the vision of the city that the people had, and he will build a city. His city. It's going to be a great city. He will make it great. And he will bring the peoples back into a place of unity. A people not committed to their own greatness. A people not committed to their own name. Because there is no way, as we can see, that a city on this earth without God is going to be great. We as human beings... We'll take our cities, we'll take our nations, and we will eventually destroy them because each and every one of us is somehow pursuing a great name and a great city without the Lord. And we will always, we will always engage in the othering to make our names great. Call it othering. You see distinctions and in our fleshly desires to make our names great, to make our cities great, to make our ethnic group great, we see distinctions and we're going to use those distinctions and take advantage of those distinctions to oppress others and elevate ourselves. And we're going to cover some stories historically in which we do that. We want to, to create something that we can call ours. That's what the, that's what the citizens of Babylon, let us ourselves make But to have an ours, the others are going to have to have theirs. So we're going to have these, all of us, different nations, different cities, different ethnic, we're all going to have our own things. And we're all going to be striving to make those the greatest. You can only have a greatest if you have those that aren't great. We can't have an ours without a theirs. And the tendency in majority cultures, you know, at best, you know, we're going to cover some Proverbs, at best, majority cultures turn a blind eye to the poor and to the immigrant. That's at best. They're not seen. At worst, the majority cultures exhort and abuse to build our city and to make our names great. I've been in some, inter some deep interaction with a neighbor over the last, well, eight years and I just had asked her, I said, you know, I, I can't tell from the conversations and stories that we've had to this point, but I, I really would like to know, has your, has your experience of Christianity been negative? And she said, no, it really hasn't been negative. She says, I do remember a time when I was nine years old. She grew up in a Methodist church, and this isn't anything negative about Methodism. This, this kind of history, as we'll, as we'll see throughout the series, is consistent really in all stripes of Christianity. She says, I remember when I was in the church at nine years old, and the church voted to not allow a black family join the church at nine years old. She said at nine years old, she knew that that was wrong at nine years old, and she was outraged. Churches that aren't really concerned about building the family of God but building some other thing, are, are their own city, their own people, their own, whatever it is, 
That was not a decision made with the interests of God and the purposes of God and the purposes of Jesus Christ in mind. That was a decision made with a different purpose in the context and in the name of the church of Jesus Christ. The city of God made up of the nations, made up of ethnic groups, should be our vision as individuals, as households, and as a church. And we're going to spend the rest of this series kind of talking about what that means. But I think we all have to ask ourselves as individuals, as families, and as a church, where are the nations around us? How have, how have we isolated ourselves from these nations, from these peoples, from these ethnic groups? Where can we enter in and manifest God's purposes to build a family of all families, a nation of all nations, a family of God made up of all peoples and languages? So how do we do this? Well, we have to confront ourselves with our source of greatness and glory. Is it something that, is our greatness and glory in our name, is that something that we see that we are going to build, or do we see that it is something that the Lord God needs to build? Because if we really need to be honest with ourselves, if we exclude God from this process, we, we have to face the reality that we will be consistent with all history. <laughs> and we will set others against, we will set ourselves against others and oppress others for making ourselves great. We, we have to put ourselves as seeing that if God doesn't make me great, I'm going to destroy myself and others in the process. It, it's, it is given to us by God in being made in his image to long for greatness. That's not a bad thing, to long for glory. It's not a bad thing. It's, in fact, Colossians, as we've all learned, chapter 1, verse 27, that, that our hope for glory is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ who dwells within us. If we see the goal of our glory as anything different, we will just bring destruction. So we cannot resist the desire that we have for greatness or for glory. We have to ask ourselves what is going to be the source of that. And I want to conclude with just a brief, the, the brief presentation of the gospel in Philippians. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit being you think highly of, more highly of yourselves than you ought. You think higher of yourselves than you do of others. It says, you need to count others more significant than you. So here's kind of the formula for extending this kind of view into the world. Others are more significant than you. You need to look not only to your own interests, but you need to look to the interests of others. They're both important. God doesn't want, to, God doesn't want us to ignore what it takes for us to, to live. And be we have things that we're responsible for. The tendency that we have, though, is to just focus on those things that make ourselves great and not look to the interests and needs and concerns of others that is going to make them great. He says you need to have the attitude of Christ. He says, Jesus Christ, even though being God, did not equate equality with God something to be grasped. What did the people of Babylon say? We want to go to the heavens. We want to make our name great. Jesus did not have that mindset. He says that he emptied himself and he became obedient to the purposes of God. 
And then it says that, that God exalted him, and get this, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name that is above every name. The people of Babel wanted to make their name great. Jesus and his obedience to God fulfilled the purposes of God, and God, just like he told Abram, made his name great. And that is our calling. For us to be great, we have to pursue this family of God made up of the nations and peoples of the world. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your beautiful word and how it really paints a very clear picture of your purposes in regards to all the peoples and nations of the earth. Lord God, we, um, we acknowledge our weakness and our need. Our prayer is that as individuals, households, and as, as a church, we would fulfill your promises to do this good work, that we would obey you. So help us, God, to see where we need to repent. Help us, God, to see where we need to, to grow and expand in these efforts. In your son's name, amen.